Good morning. Thank you very much. It is a good morning, and it's great to be with you. I'm Oliver, and uh, I was born in the 50s, early 50s, early 50s for that matter. So, um, so thank you for reminding me, John. This morning. Uh, um, but it's great to be with you. I'm here with my lovely wife, Bridget. She's sitting over there. She is from Dorset originally, uh, in case you're wondering where she's from. She's really from Dorset, so, you know, in case you're wondering, so, but she's from Dorset. I was born in Cape Town and uh, grew up in a Christian family that was, in many ways, um, not just shaping or formative in what I believe, but actually gave me the opportunity to explore for myself whether the faith of my parents was cultural or real. And uh, at the age of 18, I woke up one morning to the reality that it's not just my mom and dad's faith, it's my faith. And uh, it, that's really a big ex- discovery, because actually, and we, when we raised our three daughters, uh, who grew up in the same sort of household again, we often said, Bridget and myself, what, would, what, it, would, what will it be like if they go through life just living by the faith of their parents? And somebody said, God, help us to nurture the root in them. And I can remember the day, I can tell you the incidents in their lives where actually we said, the root's growing in Donna. The root's growing in Carrie. The root's growing in Melanie. And uh, began to say, well, you know, even if we stop believing, which we're not going to do that, by the way. (laughs) Even if we stop believing, the root in them is stronger than the example from us. And I say that because I don't know whether you followed the news this week, the ONS talking about the decline of people who claim to be Christians in this country. It's quite alarming. 2002, over 70%. Um, Ten years ago, just under 60%. Now it's just under 50%. And uh, I think if anything makes me realize that we're living in times when we really need to rediscover the principles and the reality of why this thing we call our faith in Jesus is real, not just for ourselves, but for the next generation. These are the days. I really believe that. Anyway, Greg, come and join me for a minute. Greg works for the Eternal Wall. I am very glad to be involved with the Eternal Wall. I don't work for the Eternal Wall. You know, I'm, I'm a freebie for them. No, 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 you know, no. I actually believe in the vision and you understand why. But, but Greg, tell us a little bit about the wall. Just two minutes, just Potted history, just in case people haven't heard about it before. Ah, there's a, this is microphone. That's your microphone. <laughs> oh, the old ones are the best I cover, you know. Okay, all right. How do I follow that? Okay. Right. Uh, badly. <laughs> <laughs> right, so um, Eternal Wall of Answer Prayer. So this is a project to build a landmark built of a million bricks, and every brick is linked to an answer prayer. How close is it? Where's the, where's the landmark? So it will be built in Coase Hill, so it's... Not far from here at all. I'm not actually sure in terms of miles. 15 miles away. So it's, it's really close. It's going to be 50 meters tall. So that's two and a half times the height of the Angel of the North. It's being built between the M6 and M42 motorways. There's a point where they cross. And it's going to be seen from up to six miles away. I think it's estimated 800,000 people will see it every week. Mm-hmm. They'll then Google, you know, what was that beautiful arch that you can see over there and f- discover a million stories of answered prayer. 
of times when people have cried out to God and he's answered in some way, big, small, yes, no, whatever that looks like. Greg, where are the million stories coming from? So they're coming from across the UK, from you. Yeah, there we go. There we go, taking the hint. Yes. (laughs) I'm just prompting it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, why am I doing that? Um, Yes, they're coming from people like you across the UK and across the world. And uh, the the land is secure, the the road's going in, and this year we start building, right? Yes. well, there's not much left of this year. Oh, you mean the road? Uh, yes. I mean next year. Next year. Yes. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, okay. So this year we started building the yeah. access road yeah, to yeah. get to the site. Next year we'll start construction yeah. on the landmark itself. And it's really going to be exciting. So watch the space. And actually that design is an internationally, uh, architecturally, it was a big competition. And it's actually, it's, a, it's literally going to be a global iconic statement being planted in the UK, but for a global mm. testimony. So that's great. Uh, Greg, one thing, if people were to pray for one thing in particular right now, for the team, for the wall, for the project, what would you say? You work in the team, what, what would they to pray for particularly? Um, I think at the moment, just to get the stories in, I think there's a real culture shift that needs to happen for people to start intentionally remembering what God has done. I think we're very easy to forget what God has done. And I think we're, we're sort of moving in and almost trying to shift that culture to be like, no, God has done things. Let's spend time remembering them. And so just prayer that that, that culture shift happens and that people do start to share their stories would be really good. Bless you, Greg. That's great. Okay, I know time is of the but Thank you. Well done. Thank you, Greg. And uh, my wife, Bridget, I'm not going to get up to say much, but if you want to meet a real Christian, there she is, right there, you know. Um, she told me I have to say that, so, you know. I, I know. Um, no, I didn't. But, uh, you know. Father, we, we really long for church to be more than just us gathering together for the sake of our own sense of belonging, great as it is, our own sense of comfort, much as we need it. But we long to be a church that is expressive of and reflects to the world around us the person, the glory, the majesty, the power, and the purpose of God amongst people today. As we think about what we've heard even this last few days about the huge challenge that surrounds those who call themselves followers of Jesus in this nation, we pray would you come and reinvigorate and just reshape that thing within us that makes Christ in us the hope of glory, not just something that we keep to ourselves, but begins to radiate from ourselves to the world around us, we pray. Father, I thank you for your church. I thank you for this church. Thank you that you are building your church. And Lord, we thank you that the promise of Jesus in Matthew 16 and other places where Jesus, you said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is greater than anything that we read, see, or hear around us. So we pray, Lord, will you help us to be part of the construction of that, that you're seeking to establish in this generation and for generations to come for as long as we have before Jesus returns, we pray. And everybody said, Amen. 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 I'm going to read a scripture. If you're going to follow with me, I'm going to read from the book of Joshua. And uh, Joshua chapter 4. And it's a really well-known story. 
Um, interesting story because actually I've been doing some of my own research on it and so on because it's a story about a day when, again, God did miraculous things to get people out of a state they were in into a promise that they were to inherit. Now, the promised land had to go from being a promised land to possessed land. If you live with promise all your life, it's going to be kind of disappointing because promise is hope deferred if it doesn't happen. It makes the heart sick. But the promised land has to become the possessed land. Would you agree with me? Okay, you can talk to me. I'm not your mother. That's okay. Okay. (laughs) The promised land has to become the possessed land. And so there was something that God was going to do to shift them from where they'd been 40 years in a desert situation into the possession. But we read together from Joshua chapter 4, it says, When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests stood, and carry them over with you, and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord, your God, in the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of Israel of the Israelites to serve as a sign among you in the future when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the, jo- the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel for e- forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites. And the Lord had told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to their camp where they put them down. Joshua set up 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priests had carried the Ark of the Covenant and had stood. And they are there to this day. Interesting story because when I was growing up and I grew up in a Christian family, as I said to you, and... uh, the story of the crossing of the Jordan is not a story I'm unfamiliar with. I've heard it hundreds of times, probably. My dad, my grandfather was a lay preacher. My dad was a preacher, and I've listened to preachers ever since I can remember, uh, talking about the crossing of the Jordan, the miraculous thing. And it's just been a recent time, a thing began to kind of niggle at me a little bit. What happened to the stones? They tell me diamonds are forever, but what happened to these stones, you know, because they're not diamonds. So what happened to them? So I began to do some research, and that's quite interesting, because if you study the original language, it talks about these stones in a way that in the original text and in the revised kind of translations, we've added something which actually almost speaks about the stones as being established outside of the Jordan, because we read a little bit later in Gilgal, there was an erect, uh, 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 another statue, uh, memorial erected and so on, and, and things began to uh, be focused around there. But it seems to me, and I'm not going to make a theory of this, I'm not going to make a big deal about it, but it seems to me, and actually if you do some study into it, that there were two things that happened here. Number one, Joshua, on the instruction of God, took stones where the priesthood and said, this place is going to mark a change. Then, to remind the people that crossed the river, took the stones that they carried out the river and put them up in Gilgal for a second one. So, possibly, possibly, we don't know for sure, but possibly we're talking about a pile of stones or even two piles of stones. 
The point of the matter is, it was that important that God said, I don't want you to ever forget what I brought you from and where I'm taking you into. Now, the eternal wall of answered prayer, my words, not the team's words, and I'm not going to change the mantra, but the eternal wall of answered prayer is not a memorial. Now, I know in the scriptures here, Joshua said, God said, these stones will act as a memorial. Literally saying these stones will act as a place to remember. Not a memorial to go and, oh, well, the days are great days behind us, you know, we feel terrible. But this will be a point of remembrance of the power of God. Not a memorial, but a landmark. And I'm going to change it even a bit further. Not a memorial, not even a landmark, but a marking of the land to say God was here. And I think that that's really important. If ever we needed to, and if ever we've been required under God's instruction to mark the land in which we live with a sign, a tangible expression of God is present, today is that day. Come on, agree with me or, you know. It's the truth. We have eight grandchildren. Uh, people said to me, well, you know, I turned 68 just the other day. They said, if you 68, you know, so are you retired? And I have thought about it, but I did dismiss it. My wife will tell you she's quite disappointed because, I mean, you know, no, she's not really, but, you know. And I said, God, if I have another 10 years of good health, what can I do to mark the land? What can I do to leave something to say to the next generation, this is a place where God was at work, and provoke the question, what does it mean? Now, I began to do some of my own research, as I said, and I began to think, okay, what were the 12 stones? What could they stand for? And I don't have time to go through them in the time allocated or available to us and so on. I'm just going to skim through these things, so I do apologize for not giving them the full value of what you need to go and think it through for yourself. But I go walking every morning and every night. It's part of my routine and, and so on. I did it this morning, up and early, no cars. We live in, the, in a village and so on. And I just like walking and saying, okay, God, what does it mean? And I felt the imperative of the Holy Spirit begin to say to me, what do these stones mean in today's culture? So I went back to the original text, which I've done. And actually, this is what it stands for. Okay, the 12 stones, and these are not in some kind of uh, Bible dictionary or whatever. These are things which were birthed in my own heart. They're not exhaustive. They're not by any way ex uh, exclusive. But actually, the 12 stones to me were a reminder of Egypt, captivity, slavery is over. Now, that is not just significant for those who were themselves previously in captivity, slavery, or living in Egypt, but actually their children and their children's children would be the beneficiaries of that. Would you agree? If you're born free, you live free. If you're born in slavery, you are a slave. You're indentured to the people that actually are your owners. Stone two could be, potentially, God's appointed liberator, Moses. You see, when God has a plan, somebody once said, God finds a man or a woman who are going to execute the plan to make it happen. I've got a point. I'm going to get to it in a bit. So these things don't just happen. 
God will raise somebody up. And that's why when leadership begins to emerge with the vision that comes from heaven, God says, what are you going to do with the plan? And what are you going to do to support the person I've given the job to? Because it's not their idea. It's my idea being executed through them. And so God's plan was to raise up somebody from a position of obscurity to lead a nation into liberty. Number three, Exodus chapter 7, chapter 7 through 11 talks about God's power at work in beginning to make this happen. And there were things happening that looked like the whole world was turning into chaos. River turning into blood, infestation of fleas and locusts and all sorts of pestilence and so on. Animals dying. I mean, talk about stuff happening. and think, my God, what is happening today? And God says, I'm just showing you that actually, if you think you can put your trust in what you know is sure, I'm going to start shaking things. I don't know about you, I feel we're living in a time where shaking is kind of getting like an epidemic, really. No. I mean, everywhere you look, we go from one moment of crisis to the other. I spoke to somebody this morning who was talking about their children serving in the medical services in this country. It's, my heart goes out to people who are serving every day. We criticize people very often because they don't give us what we want. But the, the, the lives that they're living at the sharp end of people's needs is huge. The lady that lives next door to Bridge and myself is a clinical psychologist, works at the QE hospital in Birmingham, QE2. And we've talked about my faith and our faith, Bridge and mine, with her. And I could see the first time we talked about her, she was trying to psychoanalyze me, trying to think, oh, okay, I knew it was weird. I didn't realize quite that weird, you know. And then COVID hit. And our anchor in Christ and her lack of an anchor in God was very obvious. And one day in particular, Bridget was there, she could tell you. We arrived home and our neighbor arrived at the same time and as we parked our car, I looked across and I said, Kelly, how are you doing? And I could tell she was crestfallen. She was absolutely shaken. And she said, right now, we're living a nightmare. She said, I'm dealing with suicides and things. I, I said, wow. I said, and she said, not the public, staff at the QE. And then Kelly turned to me, and literally, as she began to speak, she burst into tears. This is the person who, not long before, I thought, okay, you know, here's another one for the funny farm, she's thinking. And she said, if ever we need people like you, it's now. Please pray for us. Bridget speaks to people every single day of her life. She doesn't have any activity in the wall at all, other than the fact she keeps me company and makes sure that I behave myself some days. Um, but she writes to people every day online who are writing in with questions of faith, asking questions about who God is, because that's what Christian Vision uh, has been doing for the last few decades. And so working with Christian Vision, that's what we continue to do online. And this week, one day, 30 people from all around the world asking the same question, where is God in this crazy world in which we live. See, if we told God to get out of our lives so often, when actually our lives start falling apart, people start saying, well, where's God now? I say, well, he's exactly where you wanted him to be. He's out there, inviting back in. But pestilence, things happening. Our world is in a sense of uproar, and I don't want to distract myself, but Exodus chapter 7, verse, chapter 7 to verse chapter 11 talks about it. And then chapter 12 goes on, it says, and the Passover... 
at the end of all this was God says, okay, now I'm going to save you finally, children of Israel, from this situation by the blood of a lamb. I don't have time to go into that, but if you think about it, these were all things that were, God was reminding them of. Then he goes on, and he says, and I'm going to guide you in this journey you're going to go on by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. I'm going to give you these that you know my presence is constant, and whether you're walking in the day or walking in the night, whether you can see where you're going or you're having to trust me because it's only this light force of a fire, a pillar ahead of you, I'm always going to be with you. And that's a constant theme. And then he goes on, and he says, and by the way, I'm going to be your provider. I'm going to be Jehovah Jireh. I'm going to provide for you. And for 40 years, I love this because I love the thought, I don't have to, have to go shopping again for shoes or clothes, because I hate shopping. Okay. For 40 years, your shoes aren't going to wear out. I mean, imagine never having to go have your shoes wear out. You never have to go shoe shopping again, gentlemen. You can actually, you know, you can wear the same pair of shoes for 40 years. Man, that would be great. Well, it would for me anyway. And your trousers, your shirt... 40 years, never going to wear out because God's going to keep you in the state of supply in the midst of a world that says, we need things, we need things, we need things. Now, I don't know about you. I talk to people all around the country, some around the world actually, who are saying, we don't know how we're going to make ends meet. Let me tell you, Jehovah Jireh hasn't given up on us. God is still more than enough. Come on, somebody. When we started off we got married in 1970. <laughs> I was going to tell you, but I don't want to tell you anyway. Now, when we got married in 1977, I was going to say 79, but that's when our daughter was born. I've just got to get this right. Uh, when we got married in 1977, and we began to travel around the country, when we got married, the day we got married, in the marriage ceremony, there's a part which says, and with all my worldly goods, I thee endow. You know that part, okay? I've done enough weddings to know what I'm talking with all my worldly goods are the endowed. And I looked at Bridget and, I, and, and somebody, and I said, I'll give you everything. Well, she had money in the bank. I had squat. I had nothing. But I heard somebody shout from the back of the church, there goes his guitar. That's all I had. <laughs> and so we began to trust God from that beginning source with what we were. And people used to come to us and say to us, listen, they really did say this. I mean this. Oh, poor Oliver and Bridget, they've only got God thinking that that was a vote of sympathy. To me, that was like a badge of honor. Imagine God being our supply. I don't know about you, but I've, I was young, and I'm getting old, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken, neither have I seen their seed begging for bread. I want to tell you something. God is inflation-proof. God is recession-proof. And when we put our trust in Him, yes, I understand the type of days we live in. Trust me, I live in a very real world with you. We have children who live in New Zealand, and when we look at the cost of actually just going to see them, we think, second mortgage, for goodness sake. It's not cheap. So I'm not talking about, oh yeah, it's fired for you, and so on. But I want to tell you something. If God is not able to look after us today as He did when He looked after the children of Israel, then we have a diminishing God and not a God who is eternally powerful. Clothes never wore out. 
He said, I'm going to provide healing for you in the desert. And actually, even when you have things happening which seem to be a plague upon you, serpents coming, so I'm going to erect something that says, God is our healer. Peter writes, he says, he carried our sins in his body on a tree, and by his wounds we are healed. I spoke to a pastor not many months ago, and he said to me, he said, oh, he said, I think I'm changing my theology. So it was from a pastor, a key, a leader in this country. I said, oh, he said, he said, I used to believe that healing is in the atonement. I no longer believe that. This pastor said to me, he said, what do you think? I said, well, I haven't backslidden. I mean, we're good friends, so we can actually jo- joke and joke. I said, I haven't backslidden. He said, no, 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 I'm dead serious. I said, I said Peter, I, I'm also serious. Now, God either is unchanging, or we need to rewrite not just a few verses, but we need to write the entire scripture in the context of change. He said, I'm the Lord that healeth thee. And he does that still today. Stone number, ooh, where were we up to? Number, number nine out of the, he says, manna from heaven and quail. God is not just our clothes support. He's not just our health support. He's our food supply. You know, you know something? God had food banks before we did. He just opened the doors every now and then and kicked a few quail out. He said, come on, get out there. And, so, and, actually, and God had bread supplies, you know, and I mean that genuinely. Now, again, God works and he does do amazingly in different ways. And I heard stories just last week. I was in, 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 in Germany speaking to a bunch of leaders who come in from Ukraine who are working in the war zone. And actually the stories of God's miraculous intervention, miraculous, absolutely outstanding, in the midst of adverse circumstance is still real. But God is still able to supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. You see, the George Miller homes of bygone years are great for us to have as kind of, well, that was great then. But what about today? We were actually in Mozambique, not probably about seven years ago now, probably, Bridget and myself. And the couple we were staying with, they're modern day heroes as far as I'm concerned. Rod and Ellie Hine, working in the middle of what was this war zone. And they said, every day we pray to God, give us this daily bread. And while we were there the one day, genuinely, somebody arrived with a pickup truck with a whole carcass of meat to feed the Bible school students, the the children in the school, the the missionaries and so on. And they said, yesterday we didn't know where we would have supplies from, but God does it. It's amazing. You see, God still has ravens to feed the prophets when everything around them seems like to be without resource. And God is able. Friends, if nothing else makes sense to you today, I want to say to you, trust God when everybody else is saying we need to find a better solution from government or human resources because God is still able to do more than we could ask or even think according to His power that works in and through us. And yes, I do know we need to help each other. And yes, we will help each other. But we cannot help each other more than God can help us. God is our refuge and our strength. And by the way, for those who are thirsty, He still provides water in the desert. 
In John chapter 7, Jesus said, If any person is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Thus spoke he of the, the Holy Spirit who had not yet been sent, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. But now Jesus has been glorified, and Jesus has ascended to the Father, and he has poured out the Holy Spirit, and actually we can have the water of life, not just for a drink at the start of the journey, but throughout the entire journey that we will never thirst again. And actually the water will never cease running. If you read and track the river of God from the book of Genesis to Revelation, the river that starts in the Garden of Eden is visible in the last chapter of the last book of the Bible. It says, and the water of the river of life flowed crystal clear in and through all of history, never polluted, never losing its power, never stopping being able to meet people's needs because God is present in every generation. Final one I'm going to say, and then I'm going to come back to the wall and we're going to close. He says and said, and then God leads us with the water he gave us through the water of the Jordan to go to Jericho, to a place of victory, number 11, and through the Jordan individually and collectively as a nation into a place of possession. Twelfth thing is God wants you in the promised land. God wants you to get his promises in Christ Jesus. A lot of Christians I meet these days, a lot of them, not just some, many of them, have lost hope in the promise giver because they don't think it applies to them. I've heard people say this to me, well, I know God says this, but in my case, I think it's a bit more difficult. We are never the exception to God's ability and power to meet our needs. Never. So, the eternal wall of answer prayer. Why is this important? So, God says to Joshua, Joshua, I want you to gather stones to make a mark on the land. Eighteen years ago, Richard Gamble had this crazy idea. Crazy. Because when God has a plan, he begins to find a human partner or agency. When God wanted to send a Savior into the world, he found a human partner called Mary. Jesus didn't suddenly just walk out of the ether into, say, oh, I've arrived here. No, God actually birthed through a human agency a plan he had. I've heard people say to me, and I've heard them say this because I've only been involved with the wall since May this year, and we finished with our activity with the wall in May next year probably because we have other things we need to do. People say to me, why would anybody do this in today's climate when actually this cost could be given to, and then they go through the whole shopping list of what we could be doing? Let me answer that. There is no price you can attach to hope. I want to tell you what hope looks like. And I said this last week because I had a real experience of praying and saying, God, I need to explain to these people working in Ukraine what hope looks like. And hope is not faith, and faith is not hope. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. So what does hope look like? And then how does faith benefit from hope? Well, imagine yourself on a ship for a moment. You're out at sea. The waves are so high that actually when you go into the trough of the wave, all you can see around you is mountains or mountains of water so high that you can't see anything around you. I've been in an ocean like that. It's terrifying when you think, I'm not sure how this ship is ever going to climb that mountain. 
The wind is so strong that the rain that is falling feels like bullets flying into your face. The bits on the deck that are not tied down are being blown around, blown overboard, because the, the ship itself is in danger of being broken up. And people saying, we're in trouble. We, we, we don't know where we're going to go. The ocean's going to consume us. And then in a moment of elevation, somebody sees in the distance just the light of a lighthouse. It's all they see. And they say, I can see light. The whole thing changes on the ship. Why does it change? They're still not there. But you see, hope gives us an end point for the faith journey we have to walk to have a meaning and have a direction of travel. This is making hope visible. Now let me say to you, there are people who are in an ocean of hurt right now. Whether physical circumstance, financial difficulty, relational catastrophe. And all they can see around them are mountains of impossibility. And here comes somebody and says, I can see light in the distance. We're not there yet. But if we can set our course, there is hope for the journey of faith to be worth that. God says to Joshua, Joshua, take the 12, 15, 20, there's a lot more other things I could refer to, that this nation has lived through since Egypt till now. And get one from every tribe, maybe one memory per tribe, if you like, one testimony per tribe, just one person to be a light in this dark world. And give the children of Israel and the next generation of people hope to walk by faith. Greg said, we want a million testimonies. You want to know something? I'll be honest with you, it's easier to raise a million pounds than to get a million Christians to tell their story. Is that true, Greg? I said it from day one. Because it's a spiritual challenge. People say, well, I don't have a very dramatic testimony. I wasn't a drug addict. No, nor was I. I didn't lose my house in gambling. Uh, neither did I. I d uh, neither did I. But I've proved that God is able to make all grace abound in every situation in my life, whatever the situation, because God is faithful, whether it be to supply my needs, whether it is to be my healer, whether it is to give, uh, give me guidance, whether it is to give his presence in my life and so on. And actually, there are people in the midst of a storm right now who want to see that pinprick of light that you had by a testimony to give them a direction of travel. And actually, without your testimony, they're in an ocean of hurt without anywhere to go. On your seat, there are bits of paper that say your testimony can be shared. I'll, I prevail upon you. 
Yes, it's great for us to know it. And I can pray for you and we can actually have a wonderful time. And I've seen God do some, some, some stuff in this very area. I shared it this morning where God has transformed lives of people that we thought was impossible. But your testimony could be the first light beam that somebody in the storm sees that changes a floundering, drowning sailor into a person who says, I can trust God as my refuge. And if you have a testimony, God help me in my exam. Has God ever done that? He does. You know what? Somebody needs to hear that. Or God has healed me. Anybody ever had God heal you in your body of anything? Yeah? How many of you know God wants to be the one who is the hope giver through the testimony we share? How many of you have actually seen God supply needs for just basic things in life? And God, I don't know where the money's going to come from. And then God says, but I can help you. And somebody unexpectedly comes and bless you. Has it ever happened to you? You know, there are people that right now that don't believe that God cares about that. They need that light. So that in generations to come will come back and say, John, what is this pile of stones mean? John says, ah, I'm glad you asked the question. Because if God could do it for them, God can do it for you. Now, let me finish by saying this. If you don't have a testimony because you're in the middle of a storm thinking we're going to drown, then this morning, God can give you a testimony that can become the first building block of somebody else's testimony of life for themselves. See, Revelations chapter 12, verse 11 says, and they overcame the enemy for two things. Do you know what they are? The blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. God's case, legal case, will be against Satan one day on two key components. Number one, the cross of Jesus. But number two, the testimony of the saints. You know something? The reason why the numbers, according to ONS, have gone from 70 to 47%. I'm going to tell you what I believe, and I believe this very passionately, is because we've lost the ability to share our testimony. Reinhard Bonke, who I worked with for many years, used to say this. He said, an unpreached gospel is no gospel at all. How will they know? Jesus saves if you don't tell them. How will they know God is our supplier if we don't tell them? How will they know that the steps of a righteous man are ordered of the Lord if we don't tell them? How will they know unless we put our testimony on a wall? Not a guilt trip. Not at all. Just a challenge. Ten years from now, we can have either turned the tide, or being part of the decline. I know what I'm choosing. I'm going to put my name somewhere on the wall 
with not just one story, because we've got a few, saying God can do this. Because I believe somebody, sometime, maybe in my lifetime, maybe in years to come, will go with a device. And this guy, Oliver, said, God did this. I don't, can God really do that? And you know something, I used to say this when I did schools evangelism. People used to say to me, are you trying to convert the school? I said, no, not at all. I can convert nobody. But I want to ask them a question which forces them to think again. And if they've dismissed God as irrelevant, perhaps just because of my testimony, they will discover for themselves again that it is true. And that's why we need you. Greg, have I made the case for it yet? Are you, are you sold yet? Okay, just checking. Because if he goes back and said it a lousy job, I'm going to get fired tomorrow. So. <laughs> Folks, these are serious days. And I mean that flippantly. These are days where actually, ask, and I mean this, forgive me, but I'm going to be completely honest with you. With us gathering in our few dozen every Sunday morning, great as that is, company as that is, needs to be ramped up. And you say, oh, you're going to use us. You've been talking about the rebuilding of the walls. You know what I love about that? Is they took walls, bricks that were burnt, broken, and they rebuilt with misshapen and discarded rock. And some of you might say, well, you know, with what we've been through, we, we're hardly good material to rebuild a wall. Little is much when God is in it. And your small testimony, in your view, small, with the power of the Holy Spirit just beginning to use that can become a wedge in the device of the enemy that splits Satan's deception wide open and lets the light through. How about it? God, I'm here. That form. Greg, what, what do people do with the form? Just to help us. Uh, you can write your story right now. Give it to me at the end of time so that people can see it online. And they can use it. So you, you, if you have a phone and you say, listen, I don't want to write something down. I just want to tell my story at the phone. Just do it on the phone. Just record it. You can write it down. You don't have to write it in English. I was in Ukraine last week, and the guy said, our oh, English is terrible. I said, I know, I'm trying to listen to you. <laughs> I said, send it in Ukraine. Now, Greg understands every language in the world. <laughs> it's called Google Translate. <laughs> so we're going to have, you know, so if you know people who live in countries around the world thinking, that's a great testament, it should be on the wall. We want testimonies from every nation on earth. So it's not just for us few, it's for anybody. Because a million testimonies, as a starting point, is a big ask. And when we hit the first million, you can add layers upon layers to each brick. So you can actually have a hundred on each brick. So you can actually have a hundred million testimonies eventually. But let's start with a million. Okay, let's not get ahead of ourselves. We need every testimony. Now, what does God want for you today? Maybe you feel like the children of Israel did when they were in the desert for Maybe you're looking at the end of your month and your paycheck is already finished halfway through, thinking, God, you said about shoes not wearing out, clothes not wearing out, right now, bank accounts worn out long before that. Because I deal with people like that every day. 
in every situation. Last week in Ulster, we went to the village, a town just outside of the village where we live, and there was a food bank in the middle of Ulster. People thinking, this is affluent Ulster, and there's a food bank just literally on the high street because people don't have the resource. And we went there. I said, Bridget, let's go and have a look. I want to see what it looks like. So we went to this Baptist church. We said, have a look there and so on. And sure enough, people just like us. This is all we've got. Maybe you're facing that. And I don't want to make small, any kind of light of that. I don't want to kind of diminish that. God is able to give us hope in the middle of a storm. Maybe you're praying for a son or a daughter who's lost faith in the fact that God exists. We meet people like that all the time. Maybe you're praying for grandchildren who are growing up in an environment where the parents are no longer even telling them that Jesus is real. And you say, God, do I keep praying? Well, honestly, all I've yet to do this morning is say, gather a few rocks from the journey you've been on. Just let's begin to pile a pile of stones there. Say, God, these are the things we remember you've done. And I can think of a few stones I would, would like to gather, and I do this. I sat yesterday with a granddaughter who a week ago, we thought she'd broken her leg playing football. She's really, really damaged the ligaments and so on, and her leg looked like a sausage. I mean, it's, how old is she? Ten. Now, it changes every year. It's very difficult to keep <laughs> up. It's ridiculous. I mean, you know, why couldn't it just stay? You know, anyway. And her leg, bless her, and Emmeline's name, and... We went to pray for Emmeline. Went to her house, prayed for her, laid hands on her, prayed for her. You know why? Because I want Emmeline to know what Grandpa knows, what Papa knows. I'm a Papa. I'm a Papa knows. That we can pray and Jesus hears when we pray. And I prayed for her and I said to her afterwards, Emmeline, when Jesus has healed you, you don't have to trust me or Grandma or Mom or Dad to pray for you. You can begin to pray believing God hears you. We're all in the same journey, guys. We're also grandparents. We're also parents. We also have bills. But we all have one God. So if you need God to begin your contribution to the testimony on the wall this morning, because you're facing something, I'm going to ask you what it is, because that's not important at this point in time. But I would like to pray with you. I'm just saying, you know what? I would love to have a testimony that I can say to Greg, he has a testimony from 2022 at work for me. Let's agree in prayer together right now. Let's just pray together right now. Let's agree in prayer. So before we pray, think about that thing that you want to hand to God, ask him for. And say, God, this is what I believe you can do. And this is what I'm asking you to do. Before I hand back to John again, we're going to pray. Father, we don't just want to have a theory of faith. <clears throat> we don't just want to have an expression of storytelling, great stories, but from a dim and distant time in the past that others would say, wow, it must have been great to live then in some kind of romanticized experience. But your word says that faith is the, thing, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is now. Now faith is. We want a faith that sees the things we've hoped for being birthed into possession. 
Father, we just pray for those who right now say, I'm putting my trust in you. If you need God to intervene in an area of your life, nobody's looking around, this is not a show, but you want to say, God, I'm going to put this thing before you to meet this need, whether it be on the end of economics, finance, family, sickness, direction, whatever it is, just raise your hand right now as a sign. Say, God, I'm putting my faith in you. I'm going to pray with you right where you are. Okay? Bless you. All right? Okay, just hold it there. Say, well, why am I lifting my hand? But because actually, it's just an acknowledgement of the fact that we're saying, God, I believe you can do this. Father, these hands that we lift before you are not just hands raised in kind of surrender to the situation, but your hands raised in surrender to your great power. Now, Lord, according to your word, according to the promise in your word, your word says that you are God who is able to make all grace abound to those whose faith is in you. Father, will you begin to work on behalf of those who lift their hand in prayer? Lord, I'm lifting my hand for a little Emmeline again this morning. Lord, would you touch my granddaughter? Would you restore that leg? Lord, I'm praying for my daughter in New Zealand who's been through surgery. Would you touch Carrie this morning? Would you touch her body? Father, I pray for the testimony of your presence. And Father, we don't have needs because we're weak. We have needs because we're human. But your word says that you care for us and we can cast all our needs upon you because you care for us. So we come in faith, believing in the promise, and that, Father, today we are taking stones and beginning to create this tower of testimony that says God is present and he's able. And we receive it in Jesus' name. And everybody said...